Morning, guys. I was a little concerned about whether you'd be able to sleep tonight, so I took out major portions of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Larger Catechism for you to read tonight. You're sitting there, you're counting sheep, and that's not working. I tell you what, every time, pull out that Westminster Confession of Faith, put your right out every time. So you can thank me for that. No, we actually have some good things to look at uh, in the Confession of Faith and Catechism that I think will help us this morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we're calling the, the teaching of the Master's Ethic, how to live the true life. What is the true life God wants us to live? And uh, we've seen that uh, Jesus says in the very beginning as our teacher, uh, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So those who are living out the God-centered life in a broken world and who are broken because of it, blessed are you. He's describing his people who are known in the scriptures as the poor, uh, the ones who are marginalized. They, if you look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, it's, just, it's a lot of sad stories. They're the poor of God. And he says, blessed are you. And it takes faith to believe that sometimes when your life doesn't seem to be so blessed. And then uh, we saw last week that he shows us not only what the character of a real follower of God is, but he shows us what difference we make in the world. That even as this life is very difficult for us, we're to be salt and light who are preserving and guiding and enlightening and helping and serving other people. So salt and light, what powerful analogies uh, he gave us. It's amazing what Jesus can do with just a couple of words to describe for us what kind of people we're supposed to be. Now, when we come to the next section, beginning with verse 17, it really goes all the way through the end of the chapter. And here in this magnificent section, what Jesus is doing is showing us what place the law of God, His commandments, take in our lives. In other words, for us to be the meek of the earth, how does the law of God help us in our meekness? If we're going to uh, be those who are pure in heart or those who are merciful, how does the law of God help us? And if we're to be salt and light in the world, how does the commandments of God help us? Uh, this is a major section. It's a key to understanding the teaching of Jesus in all of uh, the Gospels and really with all the apostles as well. And it's a key to understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's where you really get it. There are lots of misunderstandings on this among Christian people. There are lots of different teachings on it. And the Lord, uh, most of all, knows how much our society needs to understand what place the law has in human life and why it's our friend. Uh, so let's take a look at Matthew 5, 17 and hear what Jesus is talking about is precisely this question of how one hungers and thirsts for righteousness. As he had said uh, earlier in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. How do you find the satisfied life? Well, he's going to describe for us what righteousness is. And righteousness, uh, gentlemen, is conformity to the law of God. That's basically what our practical righteousness is. Well, let's take a look at the text 
We'll dig in and see what we can understand about how to apply the commandments of God to our lives today. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's stop right there and look, first of all, Roman number one on your paper. Practical righteousness is essential to discipleship. Practical righteousness is essential to discipleship. Let's make some distinctions on at least a couple of ways of looking at the concept of righteousness. The word righteousness in the Greek is the same word that's used for justification. And uh, we've used that word a number of times in this Bible study, and you'll find it particularly in Romans and Galatians, where Paul is answering the question, how are we considered righteous before God? How would he possibly declare us righteous before his throne of justice? How would we possibly be acceptable before God? Now, that's called legal righteousness, or some say positional righteousness. In other words, how do I gain a standing before God that's going to enable me to be admitted into heaven? Because we know that he is too holy even to look upon wrong, as Habakkuk says. So nothing unholy is coming into his presence. That's the reason that when he made his presence with the children of Israel in the wilderness, only once a year did the, did the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and then he went with buckets of blood because he was carrying the sins of Israel upon him. And atonement had to be made for that. You cannot go into the presence of God in an unholy state. We get destroyed. So how in the world are we who know ourselves to be awful sinners in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, how in the world do we find acceptance, righteousness before God? Well, uh, to divert from Matthew 5 for just a moment, let's look into this. The way in which we find our legal righteousness is according to what Paul says, once again, in Galatians and Romans in particular. Find it in Philippians and some other places too. But especially in Romans, Paul goes to great lengths to show the different ways in which people try to find this legal righteousness to be found acceptable before God. He said the Greeks have their way. They try to manipulate the gods. They make their sacrifices, but ultimately they spin out into all kinds of terrible corruptions that he describes in Romans 1. Then in Romans 2, he addresses the case of both the uh, moral pagan and there were such, you know, Aristotle and Plato taught ethics and had an ideal of the human seeking honor and seeking the, the ultimate good. And therefore, there was a, an ethical sense among many of the pagans. Paul works that out and says, but look, they violate their own conscience. No matter what they knew, whether it was the law of God in the Bible or some law of men, they had a conscience and whatever it was they had, they broke it. 
Everybody has broken their conscience. Therefore, Paul says they're condemned. He says, what about the Jews who were given the law and who have, they know the 613 laws in the Old Testament and they have plenty of regulations and some of them try scrupulously to keep that law. He says, yeah, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No matter how hard they tried, they have all fallen short. Paul gets to the end of that argument and he says, the law of God has shut every mouth. There's no one who could possibly defend himself. There's no one who could say I've got enough merit based on my Christian performance or anything that I've done to store up righteousness that allows me to be admitted into heaven. And then he says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness from heaven, a righteousness, he goes on to say, that was told about in the Old Testament but has now come to full fruition in Jesus Christ. A righteousness, he says, that is through faith and not by works. So we receive our righteousness from Jesus Christ. In other words, His performance according to the law, which is perfect, and it's the only perfect performance ever rendered before God. When I put my trust in Him, I get credit, if you will. I get full credit for everything He accomplished in His great work on on earth when He was here. So He accrued a record for me that is, if you're an accountant, you get this, He merely imputes, He reckons to my account. That's how I have a legal righteousness that allows me to enter the courtroom of His perfect justice and to hear my advocate Jesus Christ say, that man is innocent. You go, huh? (laughs) Me? Innocent? Everybody knows I'm not innocent. No, you're innocent simply because I've clothed you not with your performance, I've clothed you with my performance. That's the reason that we have confidence, brothers, in this life. Every time we sin, if we're thinking that we're going to get into heaven based on our performance, every time I sin, my confidence goes down. I know that I'm not worthy. I know that I couldn't be accepted. And my conscience condemns me. The only way my conscience is relieved is when I enter this true story of the gospel narrative, this real explanation of how I'm going to be found acceptable. And I'm told in the scriptures that Jesus loves me like his own son. I mean, God loves me like his own son. God loves me like he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus earned it. He deserved it. I do not deserve it. That's called grace. That's what grace is. So here's how we get our legal righteousness that admits us into heaven's gates. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is not legal righteousness. He's talking about practical righteousness. That is not what someone else has earned from me and by faith I receive 100% pure credit for it so that my account before God is without any niche in my armor, without any exception, without any blemish. That's the record I have. But here on the other hand, Jesus is saying when that has happened to us, when we know that God has loved us in this way, then we walk in a certain way. It always happens. And here is a very important point that Paul also makes later in Romans because he anticipates our question. This is what wicked men will ask. Okay. Now, if all my sins are already forgiven, 
and I've already got a perfect record, and there's nothing that can ruin it. I've got some women I'd like to sleep with. Oh. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got some. I've got some drugs I'd like to smoke. I've got some deals I'd like to do. I've got some people I'd like to. You know what? And we we're then aren't we tempted if we know that the deal's already done? Aren't we therefore then tempted to go out? And just freely, with license and abandon, live a life that is corrupt. Paul anticipates our childish minds. And he says, you're going to ask then, shouldn't we sin that grace will abound all the more? If God forgives sins and we're in the sinning business, that's what I call a good deal. He says, no, you've forgotten something that when you obtained your legal righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, something else happened to you besides just the acquisition of a legal perfect standing before God. Something else happened to you, Paul says. What happened to you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ is he not only gave you a new record that admits you to heaven. No, no, he also gave you a new heart. And the Old Testament says that that heart he's going to give you has the law of God written on it. So what happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're putting your faith in him because, frankly, you love him. You adore him. You admire him. You want to imitate him. That's precisely the reason you put your faith in him. You put your faith in Him because of the benefits He gives you, but at the same time, you also put your faith in Him because you have fallen in love with Him and you want to be like Him. Paul says those two things always go together. So if you have no interest in practical righteousness, you basically also have no interest in His eternal benefits. He's saying if your heart has not been changed, neither has your record because they always go together. And if your record hasn't been changed, neither has your heart. It's hopeless for you to, to try to live practical righteousness when you, you haven't trusted what he's done for you. Because let me tell you, what he's done for you is the continuing motive for walking with him. You're walking out of gratitude, not out of fear and guilt that he's going to strike you dead because you sinned. You don't live in that kind of attitude. You live in the attitude of gratitude. You're thankful for what he's done and therefore you just want to live for him. And Paul says, in addition to a new heart in Romans 8, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And you've invited the Spirit of God. You've invited God himself, the Holy One, to take up residence in your heart and to guide your life. And if you haven't done that, you haven't received the new record either. Because when you receive the record, you receive the Spirit. When you receive the new position before God, you also receive a new heart. They go together, Paul says. So now do you see, he says to us in Sandy Wilson interpretive language, do you see what an idiot you are to ask a question like that? You know, to ask, to ask if you could, since you're free from the condemnation of guilt, you just go sin all the more. He says, do you not know that you've, your whole nature has been changed? That you've ceased to be slaves of sin and now you've become slaves of righteousness? Didn't you, don't you know that happened to you? There's this huge transfer of kingdoms when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So here's the point. The freedom that we enjoy as a result of 
our legal righteous standing before God is a freedom, first of all, to serve God and a freedom, secondly, as Paul says in Galatians, to serve our brothers and our neighbors around the world. That's what we do with our freedom when our hearts have been changed and the law of God is written upon the hearts of His people. Now, this law upon our hearts then leads to a lifestyle that we're calling practical righteousness. That is, we're going to actually live in a way that's not perfectly conformed to the law, but is repentantly conformed to the law. In other words, the law shows us the direction of our lives. And on occasion, I'll turn this way, I'll turn this way, but the Spirit of God living in me, out of gratitude for what Jesus has done on the cross and the resurrection, I turn back. And then I'm off this way again. Then I turn back this way. Every once in a while I'll do that. It's called backsliding. And the Spirit sometimes kills people to get them home so they don't get into more trouble. But usually He'll smack you in the face, turn you back around this way, and you get going again. So this is the direction of our life. That's practical righteousness. Now what Jesus is saying in this text, gentlemen, is that practical righteousness is essential to discipleship. It's essential to your walk with God. Now, there are two mistakes that are often made uh, by folks who are trying to gra- uh, grapple with this. First of all, there are some who think that really, down deep inside, they think that by their religious performance or their ethical performance, that they are improving their chances of getting into heaven. They won't say oh, I think I'll get to heaven because I did this. No, they think they're improving their chances of getting to heaven by their ritual performances, their religious performances, or their ethical performances. And I'm telling you, you've got to start off with this. You have no chance of heaven on your own performance. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. You, don't, you can't improve on zero if, if you have no resources to get above zero. It's zero, it's below zero, and you can't dig out. It's awful. You're, our natural state and our natural condition is one of condemnation. Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, we are objects of wrath. That's our natural state. And he says that, that even the faith that we have is a gift from God. That's the only reason that we believe. So it would be a big mistake to think that I can improve my chances of heaven through practical righteousness. But here's the other mistake that's made, and it's made probably more often in Protestant circles, and that is that because I've been justified with legal righteousness, because now the law can no longer condemn me, because the, the punishment for the law fell on Jesus Christ completely, God exhausted His wrath on Christ on my behalf, which is true. But because that has happened, says this mistaken person, then the law has nothing to do with me anymore. The law is over, done, obsolete. Because I am now through with trying to keep the law because I've come to understand that I cannot gain my righteous position with God based on the performance of the law Only Jesus Christ has done that, and I put my faith in Him. Therefore, the law has nothing to do with me. And furthermore, my dad was abusive and moralistic, and I don't want anything to do with the law anymore. And thanks be to Jesus, He delivered me from all those self-condemning thoughts I have that have come from the way my parents reared me. That often goes with it. 
That's called libertinism. That's called antinomianism. The word nomian meaning law. It's anti-law. Now, if you grew up uh, in the South, and uh, like I grew up in a Baptist church, and some of our preachers were what we call dispensationalists, and a lot of us grew up in dispensationalist backgrounds, you know if you studied dispensationalism, historically, that's what was taught, what I just said. That the law is in the Old Testament. That it's mosaic. And that when Jesus came, that law became obsolete. And that way of salvation in the Old Testament, which the dispensationalists said was by living according to the law of Moses, the way of salvation in the New Testament is to believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to see what well, we just read what Jesus thinks about it. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And that word fulfill, if you read Stott's commentary, is a word that just simply means to bring to full expression, to fill up. So Jesus came to bring to full expression the law of God. Jesus in this text says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my law will not pass away. He says until, well, he says actually, that's another verse in another part of the gospel. But he says here that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's saying as permanent as the earth, as permanent as the solar system, so the law has abiding validity. We'll see that in, in our studies. So Jesus is showing us that the law of God, and he's speaking about the Old Testament, gentlemen. He's saying that it will not be abolished. So now we've got to figure this out. That's, that's what takes us back to Romans. You see, the law does condemn us. In the first instance, when we come face to face with the law, we can hardly deal with it. In fact, we can't deal with it because the law does condemn us and we can't stand that. So we usually avoid, deny, image manage, and all the rest when it comes to the law. But when we come to Christ, we open up our hearts and realize the law does condemn our flesh. We have no hope. And, so, and the law really serves that purpose and leads us to Christ to put our faith in Him. That's what we call the pedagogical use of the law. It's like a tutor. It kind of beats us on the head like old first century tutors used to do with children in households. They'd take them to school and make them learn and they'd beat on them. And tutors were sometimes pretty violent, especially with male children, to get them to do what they're supposed to do. It wasn't the parents. It was the tutor. So the, the pedagogue, the tutor, and that's what the law did. It kind of beat us up and got us to Jesus. But then what Jesus is saying is having been justified, having been accepted by God, now what happens, God turns us back to the law and it doesn't beat us up anymore. Why? Because we can say, yes, I'm a sinner. The law condemns my flesh from the outside of my being all the way to the inside of my being. But you know what? I have a cloak of righteousness that covers it all. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the law cannot condemn me because the law can't condemn Jesus. And Jesus' record is my record. And so I'm not afraid of the law anymore. But not being afraid of the law, now I embrace the law. Why? If you look at Psalm 19, you find that David said, How I love thy law, O Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, he said, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is radiant, giving light to the eyes. The law of the Lord, he said, is like honey. No, the honeycomb, it's so sweet. It's like gold. It's precious. 
it's almost like a romantic sort of poem Paul is writing about the law. And you know what he had? Genesis through Joshua. That's about all he had. Now, you've studied Deuteronomy. And, you know, you, we really worked hard to try to understand Deuteronomy. Paul says, I'm in love with Deuteronomy. It's a wonderful book. He loved it. Why? Because the law had become his friend. Not having been condemned by the law, now the law had another use, which was to show him how to live. This is what believers in Jesus Christ are to do. We look at all the scriptures through the eyes of Jesus Christ. We look at the Old Testament particularly through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So we want to study the law according to the way that he, that he teaches us. So let's look at, at A. This will be on your page two. Jesus affirms God's law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus affirms. Now, how does he fulfill the law? Well, if you read Stott, you see that, of course, with respect to predictive prophecies, Jesus fulfills those prophecies. He's the one who brings those things to pass. And in Matthew's gospel in particular, Matthew is saying over and over again, as it was written, He's referring to the Old Testament and showing how those prophecies are fulfilled. You have several of them even in the first two chapters of Matthew. Also, we have ceremonial law, and we see how the sacrifices in the tabernacle point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was teaching his own disciples about the Scriptures in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, how did he teach them? He showed them that everything in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, pointed to Jesus Christ including the ceremonial sacrifices. And then, of course, the ethics of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills them in the sense that he shows us by his own life what a life is like that is conformed to the law of God in the Torah. Jesus lives that life. And then, of course, in his teaching, he teaches us how to apply the Old Testament law. Now, back up a page to page 1. And let's look at the Westminster Confession of Faith for just a moment. These distinctions that are made here, uh, some might argue with, but I find them helpful just as broad categories. Now, you'll find that in uh, paragraph 2 there, he says, this law, this will be the Old Testament law, after the fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And the third line, it shows our duty towards God and our duty toward man. So, first of all, the the law reveals God's character and then it shows us how to live a life of fruitfulness, a life that pleases God and a life that is useful for our neighbor. And the Ten Commandments summarily comprehend the law of God. So the first four commandments uh, teach us how to live in relationship with God. The latter six commandments, beginning with Obeying your parents, show us how to live with respect to human beings. So you have the first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, summarized in the first four commandments. And you have the second great commandment, love your neighbors yourself, summarized in the next six commandments. Now, if you'll look at the third paragraph, he speaks here of ceremonial law. If you'll look in the second line, there are three types of law that are mentioned. In, number, in paragraph three, he speak, speaks of ceremonial law. Paragraph 4, he speaks of judicial laws. And paragraph 5, the moral law. 
Now, these distinctions are helpful because we apply these three categories of law differently. Or I should say, we, uh, yeah, we take the truth of those laws and apply them in our own day differently. Let's start with ceremonial law. Where is the best place to go in the New Testament to understand how we apply ceremonial law? The book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing largely a Jewish background audience. And he's saying to them that everything they had in the Old Testament has now been given something even better. He says, Jesus, you know, in the, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, uh, through whom he's made the universe. So Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Joshua. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that you had a covenant. You had an administration of your relationship with God. That covenant now has been replaced with the new covenant. It's a better arrangement that we have with God because Christ has come and has fulfilled all the sacrifices. You had in your worship, he says, lots of blood flying everywhere. Well, let me tell you, you got something better because the blood of Christ has been shed. The Lamb of God, the the Lamb slain once and for all so that no more blood is needed. Now, this, this is how we deal with the ceremonial laws that, yes, Jesus came to fulfill those in the sense of completing them. And all those ceremonial laws pointed to his work on Calvary's cross and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. All of the tabernacle typology is completed in Christ. And therefore, the way in which we practice those laws is to put our faith in Jesus Christ that there, when his blood was shed on Calvary, our sacrificial offering is finally made. So by faith, when I go to church, I'm thinking, I have a big sacrifice to offer to God today. And that big sacrifice is the blood of Jesus Christ. And by faith, I am offering that sacrifice again in my mind. I know that that sacrifice has set aside the wrath of God for me. So that's how the ceremonial laws are continuing to be practiced in the heart and mind of the believer. Secondly, you'll see the judicial laws in paragraph 4. He gave sundry or various judicial laws which expired with the state. So the judicial laws had to do with the geopolitical entity of Israel itself. So the laws that applied to the political state expire in their application with the expiration of the state. Example, in the Old Testament, there is a law that on the roof of your house, house you shall have a parapet. So what's a parapet? It's like a fence or, or you know, a, a protection. For, why? So that people won't fall off. And that was a law of the state. Now we'll see how that gets applied. It says here that that was a law of the state, so you'll not be fined for not having a parapet on your roof. But keep reading, and it says they're not, uh, not obliging any other now, second line of number four, further than the general equity therefore may require. What's the general equity? Well, the general equity is this, that you need to protect people who come on your property. I don't have a parapet on my roof. Why? People don't walk on my roof. It's very steep. So no one's going to fall off because they're not walking up there. But the general equity is if I have a dog, I chain him up so the mailman doesn't get bit. 
And I'm responsible for that. That's the general equity of the law. So you see how I can look even at the laws of the state of Israel. And I'm looking for general equity. How do we apply this in our day? And that, that, that probably is the most difficult corpus of law to apply today because you're having to lift it out of its first millennium or second millennium B.C. context out of its old covenantal context, bring it into a new covenantal context 3,500 years later. It takes a lot of work to do that. And there will be debates on how to apply the general equity of the law. But you see, this is very useful for the political, politically-minded Christian, and we must all be politically-minded. We must be engaged in the affairs around us. And what do we want to have in our understanding of law in our own time? Well, we won't give chapter and verse. We won't give this theological lesson to the populace. But when we're talking about what's fair and right for our neighbor, we will want laws on the books that have to do with your responsibility to protect people who come on your property. And in our hearts, it's because we know that's what God says human beings are supposed to do. When we speak of it publicly, we'll just use natural law arguments. We'll just simply say, well, you know, uh, we have a, we have a, cov- a national covenant to protect one another from harms that we can help them avoid. And that's on my property, and therefore I'm responsible. And most people will get the general equity of that idea. But in your heart, you're coming right out of the Old Testament. So you see, there's even political ramification for those of us who believe in Old Testament law and the general equity of the judicial laws, the civic civil law in the Old Testament. But then when you get to... Uh, Number five, you see the moral law. And the moral law does bind forever everybody as well as justified persons. Do you see what the writers of the Westminster Confession are saying? The law does bind every human being. Every human being is responsible for it. And even justified people, it binds us. You say, well, I didn't think I was bound anymore. I thought I was set free. Remember, when you're set free from the corruption of your selfish, dark sin, you are liberated because you're now bound to the Master who loves you and cares for you. It's just like with a gathering demoniac. The man was naked, had chains off his arms and legs because they couldn't bind him anymore. He was completely free to do whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it. He beat up other people. When he got tired of that, beat up himself. He was a terror. He was free to do whatever he wanted to do. And then he met Jesus, and the demons got cast out. And where was he? He was now clothed, bound by social convention, He was in his right mind, bound by reason. And he was at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, bound by the Lordship of Christ. And that's the first time he'd ever been free in his life. So when you get free, of course, you bind yourself joyfully, cheerfully to Christ and His Word. And that's that's the role the law has for us. Now you'll see these explanations given in Numbers 6 and 7 below. And I just want to point at the bottom of 7, a wonderful statement that's made, Look at this last half sentence. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that, that is to obey freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. The law requires that you be cheerful. 
that you cheerfully obey and voluntarily obey. That's required. <laughs> you see what kind of circle you get into. And therefore, the only obedience, which is true obedience, is cheerful obedience. Now, uh, back to A, God affirms the law. Let's go to B. In verse 18, God's law has abiding validity. And you'll see warnings in Deuteronomy and in the very last chapter of your Bible, not to add or take away from what is given. The Word of God is the revealed Word of God, the written Word of God, and it was given to us in toto. We have the entire Word that God wanted us to have. There were other letters written. There were other books written. But the ones that are inspired by God and are meant to be the canon of our faith and practice, the rule of faith and practice, is the books of the Bible. And the Bible itself warns us not to add or take away from it. So if you want to know what God's, uh, who God is, look in the Bible. You can be sure that what the Bible says about God is true. Do you want to know what we're supposed to do? Look in the Bible. You'll get lots of advice from different people. You can read a lot of great books in the history of human uh, thinking. But the one that's infallibly the Word of God is the Bible. It has a vol- abiding validity, and Jesus affirms that. Now, look at verse 19, C on your outline. Therefore, we must conform to God's law. We must conform to God's law. You know, and, and back to the argument Paul was making in Romans chapter 3, when he gets to the end of describing this new righteousness, he asks this question. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? This is Romans 3.31. He says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. What Paul is saying is the irony of this way of salvation, of your being liberated from the condemnation, the eternal condemnation of the law, the irony is you then, for the first time in your life, uphold the law. You become a defender of the law, a teacher of the law, a proclaimer of the law, and a practicer, a practitioner of the law because you've been set free from its condemnation. If you think you're under the condemnation of the law or if you think you could ever be under the condemnation of the law, you can't possibly embrace the law because it's like holding a a 240-volt wire. You can't. Well, of course, you can't let go. That's probably a bad analogy. But (laughs) you can't survive and hold on to that thing. But if you put some covering on it, you can hold it and use it and plug it into things and make good use of that power. Same way when you've been delivered from the condemnation, now you can use the law. It can benefit you. So we must conform to the law. And then in Romans 8, Paul is talking about how we're delivered from condemnation not so that we're separated from the law, but in Romans 8, 4, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So once again, it's important for us to realize we've been saved from the condemnation of the law so that we might go back to the beauty of practicing the law. It becomes our friend. And as I've said in here before, our lives need an engine and tracks. The engine is the Holy Spirit. The tracks are the law of God. And you've got to have direction as well as motive power in the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, D, our conformity must be rigorous. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, gentlemen, this would have blown the socks off of Jesus' disciples. And they would have said, 
Well, so who can enter the kingdom of heaven? We've been watching these scribes and Pharisees all of our lives. They've got not only the 613 commandments, they've got all the subpoints, and they've put the fence around every one of those commandments, and they scrupulously abide by every one of them, the least to the greatest, and they, they seem to be so righteous. And you're telling us, and we haven't had an education, we haven't been to seminary, we haven't learned rabbinical law, and you're telling us that our righteousness, our conformity to law, has to be not just better, the word here suggests much better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. What hope is there for us? Well, here's the reason. The scribes and Pharisees were doing what every person does when they think they can improve their chances of getting to heaven by conforming to the law or exercising religious practices. Here's what they do. It's just what the scribes and Pharisees did. They actually lower the demands of the law. They describe the law in a way that they can actually achieve it. So, for example, when the law says, thou shalt not murder. Okay? What that means, ladies and gentlemen, is you do not take the life of another person except in the Old Testament in capital punishment or in just war that God commands or in defending yourself. And if you don't take the life of another person, you have fulfilled the law of God. That's what the rabbis taught by and large. And Jesus said, you just brought the law down to a level that you can achieve and that therefore you can say that you accomplished something that was meritorious. Jesus launches from here into six contrasts where the rabbis taught the Old Testament law one way and Jesus says, I want you to look at it in an entirely different way. Now, sometimes in the reading of the Sermon on the Mount, we've gotten really confused when we hear Jesus say, you've heard it said by the men of old so-and-so, but I said you. And sometimes we think that Jesus is really saying, you heard Moses say this, but I'm a greater than Moses, and I'm telling you this. That's not what's going on in these contrasts that follow. He's not talking about Moses, or at least he's not contrasting with Moses. He's contrasting with rabbinical teaching about Moses. He's, he's contrasting with Jewish teaching. He's contrasting with what we today would call Judaism. And he's saying, you've heard Judaism teach you this. But I say to you, and Jesus comes as the anti-rabbi, rabbi, teaching us what the law really means. And so what he's saying here is, unless you get the law back up where it belongs, as God's revealed intention for human beings, and then embrace what he's, what he's really saying, and also embrace, he doesn't say this here, but it's implied, also embrace, you're falling short of it all the time. Instead of like the Pharisees say, I keep the law. Because look, if you, if you aspire after this law, you're always going to fall short of it in this life. And so it, that's the reason that we're the meek and the, and the poor in spirit and the mourning, mournful. Because we're always falling short of the standard we aspire to and hold ourselves accountable to. That's what grace does for us. It enables us to fall short without being self-condemned. 
And so the attempt of a pharisaical mind and a moralistic mind and a legalistic mind is to lower the law so that I can perform it and not be condemned, not because someone else died for me and provided righteousness. No, I'm not going to be condemned because I'm not wrong. And every man wants to be right. And so we then tend to bring the law down and we forget its unsearchable ways. So let's look at the first example of this. Now we turn to Roman numeral 2 in our last 10 minutes here. And we see that practical righteousness begins in the heart. This is what Jesus is teaching. And you'll see it in the larger catechism uh, before us. We don't have time to, to look at that. We just, skimped, we just skipped it, didn't we? But in the larger catechism, we're taught that the law of God does not just involve what you do or what you don't do. It also involves the very intentions of your heart. And God sees your intentions. Satan doesn't know your intention. He's not omnipotent. He's not uh, omniscient. But God is omniscient. He knows your intentions. And whatever he knows comes before him and is an issue. And his displeasure goes out toward everything that he knows that is evil. So he knows our intentions. He knows how evil they are. So when he brings a solution for what he knows is wrong with this fallen world, he brings a solution that goes to the depths of what his omniscient mind knows, including our intentions and the motives of our hearts. And Jesus is saying, the rabbis have taught you you shouldn't kill people, but you can say some crappy words about them. Well, let's just look at what Jesus says about this. He says, you have heard that it was said, that's the rabbis, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And there you have it. That's the end of the matter. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. He's saying... You are liable for judgment on the inside of your heart just as much as you are liable for judgment on the outside of your life. God sees it all and judges it all. We need a legal righteousness, gentlemen, that covers not only my bad performance on the outside. I need a legal righteousness that covers all the wickedness of my heart. And I have one. That's exactly what Jesus did. He died for your intentional sins, your unintentional sins, your your sins of, of omission, your sins of commission, your sins that you commit with your hands and feet and the sins you committed with your heart. And Jesus then is saying at the same time, this practical righteousness must go to the heart. So let's look at anger for just a moment. If any of us here take pride in the fact that we've never with our hands killed a man or we've only killed him in warfare or... We've only killed him as a matter of being part of the process of capital punishment, which some of us would believe is justified by the Bible. Or, I only killed a man in self-defense. If most of us in this room feel like we could say that, you might have some grounds for thinking, you know what, I'm doing fairly well. But Jesus says, all right, look at your heart. When have you actually wished someone didn't exist? 
when have you actually wished that bad things happened to another person? When have you actually wished that his business would fall apart, especially if he's your competitor? When have you thought thoughts about slashing his tires? Maybe you didn't slash them, but you thought about it and you wished somebody else would. Uh -huh. You had these thoughts. Here's what Jesus is saying. You just violated the sixth commandment. And the law of God condemns that behavior. Now the point is, we've been delivered from the condemnation. So what's the point for us now? Practical righteousness is, okay, I have to work by God's help in dealing with my thoughts and my intentions. Yes, it's a good thing to get a lid on your anger. It's very destructive. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. There is such a thing as righteous anger. You and I have rarely performed it. Our motives are almost always at least mixed. We do need to express righteous indignation. But you must be very careful with that because we still have indwelling sin. We still have fallen flesh. And we're very likely in the midst of our righteous indignation to just vent our spleens a little bit while we're at it. So the, what we do is we ask God to bring His law into our lives all the way into our hearts so that the murderous thoughts and the harmful wishes toward other people are being dealt with deeply in our hearts. And God, by His Spirit, is quite able to do that, gentlemen. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most moralistic religious people you know, if your righteousness doesn't by far exceed theirs, there's no way you'll enter the kingdom of heaven because they are not living a practically righteous life. The only way you can live a practically righteous life is out of joyful gratitude for being delivered from the condemnation of the law and now with joyful gratitude you embrace the law. And gentlemen, a follower of Jesus Christ embraces all of His law. Any word out of His mouth becomes marching orders for us and we're quite happy about it, God helping us. That's the attitude of the follower of Jesus in practical righteousness. Anger is a form of murder. Look at the larger catechism description here and you realize look at this uh, revenge, excessive passions uh, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor and recreations boy all of us got wiped out on that one uh, that's not treating your, your own body carefully so you're murdering yourself provoking words, oppression, quarreling striking, wounding whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any I think, they've, I think the larger catechism has done a pretty good job there of showing us how massive this commandment is if we're to take it to heart. Secondly, uh, B, the next verses. Uh, let's uh, take a look at that at verses 23 through 26. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here's what Jesus is saying. Let's take this practical righteousness and push it out to its extreme conclusion. 
Notice, first of all, we make it a priority. You're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Now, if we're offering our gift at the altar, let's say it's during the offertory, and you're putting your big offering into the plate, feeling really good about your relationship with Jesus, and then all of a sudden you remember this guy who just screwed you in business last week. It doesn't say, remembering that you have something against your brother, so leave your gift at the altar and go confront him with his sin. Now, we'll get to how you confront people in Matthew chapter 18. If someone sins against you or sins against the Lord, you confront them. And we'll talk about that in Matthew 18. Here he's saying, you remember that brother has something against you. And he's saying that you must make it a priority. Look how prior it is. If you're in the middle of worship and the offering plates are being passed and you remember that someone has something against you and he's sitting on the other side, you just get right up out of your pew, go over there, interrupt worship and take care of that business. That's how important it is. Now, obviously, our relationship with God is the most important relationship in our lives and worship is the most important thing that we do. But Jesus is using hyperbole here to say, you see how important this is? You remember that someone has something against you. If someone says to you, brother, I I really have a bone to pick with you, that just became top priority for you. Brother, I've got a grievance. You know, it feels to me that you treated me unjustly. Top priority. Get it on your list. It trumps just about everything you've got going. So Jesus is saying, this is what a man does who really believes the sixth commandment and wants to follow Jesus. He makes it a priority. Secondly, notice we take the initiative. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Don't wait for him to come and complain to you again. No, you go. Why? The opposite of anger is self-sacrificial love, which brings us to our third point. We settle the claim. Settle the claim. Oh, I I skipped the whole uh, B, and you saw it on the overhead. We must displace anger with reconciling love. Here's what you do when you believe the Sixth Commandment. We don't just say, I'm going to sit here and worship, and I'm not going to be angry. I'm I'm just going to have a spirit of love. No, we actually replace the anger with self-sacrificial love. That's what Jesus did. So we drive out anger with positive acts of love and sacrifice even toward those who have disagreements with us. This is the big challenge of removing anger from our lives. It is to say, Lord, help me to love your law because it is a description of you. And I want to be like you. That's what you did. You got up and put yourself on the cross in order that the offenses that we committed against God might be truly forgiven. And that's what we do. It's called substitutionary love. We substitute our feelings in order to minister to the feelings of others and to reconcile relationships. Well, this is the law of God. It doesn't condemn us, but with abiding validity, it guides us in this life and in the life to come. We will no longer need the written law because the law will become completely intuitive to us. Because when we're transformed in the presence of God, we'll be transformed into a completely law-abiding heart, mind, and body. Glory be to His name. Let us pray. Father, thank You for teaching us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, 
how to hear your word given thousands of years before and to apply it in this life. And Lord, no matter what others are doing around us, we pray that you'll help us to value, to cherish, and to abide by the law that you've given us so that everyone can see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Help us especially with the dangers of anger. We thank you for the gift of anger because you're angry at sin and we would be angry too. But Lord, we need your help. We need your law and we need your spirit to control us that we do not destroy or hurt other people with our anger, but rather with our anger, we help other people and we honor and glorify you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.